be seated. You know, listen, you know it's going to be a good Sunday when Carl catches the stick when he throws it. Like, did you see that? In the middle of the set, the whole church said, wow, he caught it. It was great. So, um, bear your cross as you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasure you found. You're going to find, at least if you don't fall asleep, that that is a very well-timed, perfectly fitting stanza from that song about our sermon today. Um, we're in week 14 of our series on 1 Peter. It's been an intense one. <clears throat> the name of the message today is called Covenant Immersion. You can just tell by the title this is going to be complicated, right? <clears throat> it's, it's really hard, actually, to preach today's passage without chasing rabbit trails. But we're going to try to stick as best we can with the actual text so that we don't miss what Peter and God have for us today. Have you ever met someone that was just so immersed in their work that nothing around them could distract them from their task? I mean, what's it look like when a Christian is so transformed by the work of Jesus that they would be this immersed in the priesthood? I mean, we are willing to be immersed in a lot of things, aren't we? Our jobs, our families, our politics, our music. We are all in to be immersed in tons of temporary bios. If you remember the sermon from a few weeks ago, bios type things. But it's very hard for us to be fully immersed in the priesthood. I'm thinking of Pedro today, who is on behalf of Grace Life, representing us in four or five different juvenile detention centers in Tennessee left early on Friday morning flying there to preach the gospel to people in juvenile detention. I was thinking last night I was at a, an event for a program called Prodigal Daughters and the incredible kingdom priesthood work that they do for hurting mothers and moms. Just incredible people who are just fully immersed in the kingdom. Why can't we all be like that? What if Christians, or more particularly, what if you could be just as immersed in the kingdom as they are? And why do we struggle with our commitment to the kingdom? I mean, comparing what these first century believers faced and what they had to do and what Peter was commanding them to do, aren't our struggles that keep us from full immersion in the priesthood, aren't they just a little bit embarrassing? I mean, we should be embarrassed by the trivial things that keep us from being fully committed to the kingdom. The question is, how can we get to the point that we are fully transformed enough that we will always be undistracted and immersed in kingdom work, as Peter describes in our study as we've gone through? I mean, how do we get there? Is it simply just us deciding to do better? Just going to try harder? Or is it possible that it's a supernatural consequence of the work of the cross in our heart and life? Or maybe it's a little both. See, I believe that it rests in the power of God's covenant promise. How it transforms us when his elect, us, when we are immersed in it by his grace. Let's look at the passage today from 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 through 22. <clears throat> for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which the spirit he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. More on that later. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water or through the flood. Baptism corresponds to this. Now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. This is an intense passage. It's, an, it's a difficult passage. There are a lot of interpretations of it. I'm going to call the historical section the Gospel of Noah. I'm going to start off by reading the story, or just a part of the story, that Peter is referring to in his passage. You ready? It comes from Genesis chapter 6. I'm just going to read verses 2 through the first half of 6 and then verse 8. <clears throat> the sons of God saw that daughters of men, the sons of God are the spirits who are in prison that Peter's talking about in 1 Peter chapter 3. They are, in fact, fallen angels. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man, humans, were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. That's how long it took Noah to build the ark. And see that Peter mentions that. The Nephilim, those were the children of these fallen sons of God and these daughters of men. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. <clears throat> More on that later. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These children were mighty men, the Nephilim who were of old, the men of renown, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So, I've given you that passage in Genesis 6 for a reason. There are a couple of difficult interpretations of today's passage. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm just going to give you the one that I, as your pastor, have a lot of confidence in and embrace. <clears throat> That's the one I'm going to present to you. But understand, before we get there, there is a prevailing theme throughout the history of the Bible, throughout the Old Testament. And here's the theme. Satan wanted to destroy the bloodline of Christ. The devil wanted to do everything he could to keep Christ from being born. Not only the bloodline of Christ, he really wanted to either kill or keep from being born his chosen, his elect, like the ones he, Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, when Jesus came to the earth, their focus shifted from stopping the bloodline to just trying to destroy Jesus himself with a long list of schemes ending at the cross. But now we see this in, in Genesis 6. Wickedness in the days of Noah was rampant. You think it's bad now? It was not even close. Evil corrupted everything. Not evil as in we see it sometimes in America, as bad as we think it might be. This was far worse. Fallen angels, or sons of God, took on human form, made daughters of humans their wives, and had many children. Those children, the, Neph the Nephilim, are half fallen angel, half demon, and half human. They are the embodiment of evil and violence. Think of what continual evil would look like with these demon children running the world. Imagine, if you will, just imagine sort of 
just to give you a feel for how dark and evil and violent it was, imagine multitudes of Hitlers and Stalins. And the goal of these spirits, corruption of the bloodline of Jesus and corruption of the entire human race with the attempt of making the human race unredeemable. Why? Because angels are not redeemable, only humans. But then we see something else happens, historically speaking. There is a save through water concept that I want to share with you. I think we have some stuff out of, out of order. So I'll come back to Jude 6 later. I believe this save through water thing could mean, I this is what I believe, the bloodline of every family in humanity except for one family. Noah and his tribe of eight had been corrupted. All that remained of the line of Jesus and the future elect, like us, was down to Noah's family. They are the last and final target of these Nephilim, these evil demon children. <clears throat> what we know is that there is a major spiritual battle going on at that time. And for today, I don't want us to get sucked into all if different types of speculation. We can go all places with this. I'm going to try to keep us focused on this spiritual battle. But God had made a covenant with someone early on in Genesis chapter 3. Her name was Eve. After she fell, he said, Eve, your seed shall crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will bruise your seed's heel. He made a covenant of redemption promise with Eve and her seed, a promise inherited by Noah and his family. So for the next 120 years, God kept his promise to Eve by preserving Noah and his family, patiently waiting for them to build this ark. And then Noah and his family were saved, not by waters, but through the waters of judgment, by the ark. And those waters of judgment destroyed and cleansed the earth of the evil that had corrupted it in every way. Thus the ark, carrying Noah's family through the waters of judgment becomes a symbol of God keeping his covenant of redemption that he made to Eve. This was a core teaching to every believer by the apostles in the first century, connecting the ark of Noah and the story of the flood to the cross and Jesus. Everybody understood this. It was as common as us when we say amen at the end of a prayer. This theology was written about four different times by Peter and by Paul. And what Jesus taught in Matthew and Luke is the very same theological concept. Noah and the flood and the ark and redemption and the covenant promise all rolled together. So we see this saved through water. I have another historical point. What happened down there? So Peter makes some pretty bold claims about what Jesus was doing during the three days his body was in the tomb, doesn't he? He says, you know, while Jesus was dead in the tomb, his spirit was made alive, and his spirit goes down to this place and starts talking smack to demons. <laughs> A rational question would be this. Peter, how do you know where Jesus' spirit went? And what Jesus did during that time, that's a rational question, right, Peter? Where'd you get this? Imagine the disciples. Just imagine. Jesus dies. He returns to them, resurrected, says, don't touch me yet. I have not ascended to heaven. And then Jesus sits, and he's talking with the disciples. 
Imagine if you were one of the disciples. What would be some questions that you would ask? Um, where did you go? <laughs> what did you do? Who did you talk to? Hello, you were dead and now you're not. What's it like? Imagine the room where Jesus is meeting with his disciples, and we see this recorded in the Gospels. Imagine the room as Jesus teaches what he's been doing, where he went, and what he said, and to whom, before his body was resurrected. I imagine these moments of Jesus, you know, Jesus was teaching a lot. Remember, we went through the Gospel of Mark, and we got frustrated with the disciples, right? Why can't you get it? <laughs> right? We talked about They still don't get it. At this point, oh, they get it. Can you imagine how quiet the room is as Jesus teaches what he's been doing, where he went, and what he said, and to whom? These moments were powerful. Imagine how encouraging, how informative, how inspirational this must be for the apostles to sit with resurrected Jesus as he tells them what's been going on. Right? It makes sense, right, why Peter would have the gall and the courage to proclaim the gospel on the southern steps of the temple in Acts 2 with Roman soldiers bearing down. He wasn't afraid of anything anymore. He knew that the victory that Christ had over evil was complete and full. He had nothing to worry about. Yes, he might suffer. Yes, he might be martyred, but he doesn't care. It also explains why Peter and the apostles were so courageous when they taught other followers of Jesus to be willing to risk it all. Listen, I know it seems like a lot, but trust us, we know. Jesus told us. He won. He even bragged about it. The firsthand account of the teachings of resurrected Jesus from the disciples were at the heart of what everyone following Jesus wants to know. Wouldn't you want to know? Dude, did you hear? Peter's going to be preaching uh, down at McDonald's at 2 o'clock on Thursday. He's talking about what Jesus, we ought to go. I mean, there is so much here in this passage that I'm really struggling, and I, I, I made, I'm not going to go down rabbit trails. I'm not going to go down rabbit trails. I'm not going to go down rabbit trails. But there's so much here about Noah and the angels, what Jesus did during the three days, and then this word baptism pops up. Well, that confuses everything. Let's just try to unpack it. I want you to stay with me. Let's look at the spiritual application of this passage. I want to talk about a bad day for demons. Who are these angels in prison, these spirits in prison that Peter talks about? There are different groups of demons, right, or fallen angels, as we call them. Some who still roam the earth, some who have been bound temporarily, and some who are permanently bound. The ones who have been permanently bound are the fallen angels in Peter's passage, the ones that we learned about from Genesis chapter 6. You don't believe me? Check out what he says in 2 Peter that we're going to get to when we go to 2 Peter after this. By the way, just a commercial. We're doing 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and then the book of Revelation. That's our schedule for preaching over the next 11 years. So with that in mind, <laughs> 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. See, I told you. He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. The word preserved is actually sozo, saved. Saved Noah, a herald of righteousness. Remember that bold for later. It's going to blow you away. With seven others, when he brought a flood 
upon the world of the ungodly. And then Jude 6, which I had out of order in my slides. I'm just going to read it to you. Here's what Paul says about those fallen angels in Jude verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. In other words, they started having children with uh, human ladies. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So you can see, Peter taught it, Paul taught it, Jesus taught it, John taught it. This is who the angels in Genesis chapter 2 are and the ones in 1 Peter, the ones who are bound forever. I want you to see this about being immersed in God's covenant. Here's a Greek word that I'm going to give you that sounds very familiar. Baptizma. That's the word we get, the English word baptize. We think of like a, a, a religious rite, a ritual. The word baptizma is a very specific use of this word baptize. Bapto is the word. It's a, it's a word that means immersed. This is baptizma. It means immersion. I want you to think of more, instead of immersion, think engulfed, buried. Immersion that brings purification, resulting in spiritual reformation. That's what this word baptizma that we translate into baptize in our English Bibles. Peter's use of this word is beautiful. It is not a ritual word. It is not the believer's baptism that you think it means. It is a covenant word. But it's easily lost in our translation English. When you read that, the first thing you think is, oh, baptism. See, first century readers... When they see the word baptism, it's not the ritual thing that, thing that you and I think of. It had seven uses in the New Testament, and only two of them had to do with water. The form of this word means being immersed in or overwhelmed by a transformational power. And what is that transformational power? It is the covenant that God made with Eve. The flood, which is judgment, and the ark, which is grace, are both God keeping his covenant with Eve that her seed would what? Redeem humanity. Humanity at that time, which was full of evil thoughts continually, was baptizma, immersed in water, judgment, for the sake of the covenant, that particular human race that was half human and half demon was wiped out. Noah's family was also baptizma, immersed by the covenant through the ark, which Peter says very clearly carried them through judgment or specifically water. So in this particular situation, water is judgment, ark is grace, both are symbols of baptizma, immersed in an overwhelming force and power that brings change and transformation. The world was changed by evil being wiped out. Noah's family was changed and transformed to a clear conscience, as Peter describes. Peter's point, God has baptizma, overwhelmed, engulfed, his elect exiles. Who was called elect exiles in 1 Peter chapter 1? His readers, weren't they? Us. God's 
plan of baptisma, overwhelming, engulfing his exiles with the same covenant promise that preserved Noah, which is a fulfillment of the promise to Eve. Are you following with me? This is hard stuff, so don't fall asleep on me. Look at this one. This is where it gets fun. Victory over evil. What is the result of this baptisma process between water and the ark? Both are examples of baptisma, being overwhelmed and engulfed. One is overwhelmed and engulfed by judgment, water, and one is overwhelmed and engulfed by transforming grace, the ark. What is the result? Victory over evil. Paul describes it great in Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Rulers and authorities, that is demons. Not kings and senators and presidents. It is evil spirits. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You're going to get blown away by this. Just watch. Rulers are the same angels that Jesus in the spirit these angels, these rulers and authorities, they're the same ones that Peter says Jesus in his spirit proclaimed victory over when he went down to their prison. Reclaiming, Jesus did, his power and authority he voluntarily gave away. Picture for a moment with me, just so you understand what I'm talking about. Picture those rebellious spirits who had those demon children, right? The flood comes, human race is cleansed from these half-demon, half-children and these demons are put into eternal prison. Now they're bound up, but they have a hope. They're waiting for Lucifer to show up with the keys to the prison because he's killed Jesus at the cross. When that happens, we get the earth back. We're going to go back to what we were doing in Genesis 6, and we are going to run this show again. The death of Jesus the cross, that is our triumph. But then the spirit of Jesus shows up. Um, guys, I got a little bad news for you, fellas. Just as I saved Noah from you guys with my covenant promise, when I engulfed you in judgment and I saved them through the ark, I have also now just saved all of my elect. I have immersed them, engulfed them into the same covenant promise, the one that preserved Noah and the one that destroyed you. I have transformed these elect into powerful priests who will spread the word of my victory far and wide. We'll get you more on that later, don't worry. I know I'm giving you a lot of bookmarks to remember. You forces of darkness, you have been defeated. Your leader, Lucifer, he's not coming with any keys, guys. He's bound up now, too. I am reclaiming my authority that I one time voluntarily gave up. I have defeated death. And you guys, you are officially eternal toast. I mean, think about this news for them as they were waiting for Lucifer to come let them free. It must have been soul-crushing, humiliating, embarrassing. It is the most frightening outcome they could imagine, and it has taken place. It is, in fact, their worst-case scenario. What? We killed him, and he came back? 
And you know what Jesus is doing here? I kind of like this side of Jesus. He's kind of rubbing it in. I don't have any problem saying that. He's proclaiming to them the details, the extent, and the consequences of his thorough butt-kicking and victory over evil. It is, in fact, they are there, these fallen angels, their total humiliation. Peter's point through all this, through covenant baptizma, covenant immersion, covenant engulfing, Jesus has defeated evil. Nero will not prevail, the one who is persecuting you. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. That's why Paul went through his little run in Romans 8. Shall death, persecution, famine? No, in all things, we are more than conquerors, and nothing can separate us. That's some good theology right there, ain't it? All right, you ready for the personal? I want to talk about heralds of righteousness. Remember that phrase where Peter called Noah and his family heralds, people who proclaim righteousness? Doesn't that kind of sound like what Jesus did? Remember that one too. You ready? Here's the sermon preview this week. Are you fully captivated and inspired by the victory of the cross or just conveniently curious about it? Let me just tell you something about evil. There's still evil out there. Okay? And evil loves it when God's royal priests like us are distracted by bio stuff that's all around us. That's what Peter's encouraging them about. He's saying, listen, stick with your calling as heralds, as what? Proclaimers of God's covenant promise. Nero, even if he kills you, can't win. You have been immersed, engulfed, baptismed in the same transforming power of God's covenant that he made with Eve and Noah and then Abraham, a covenant promise that preserves and transforms his people into a chosen priesthood of powerful heralds, proclaimers of victory, the same victory Jesus was bragging about in the pit to the evil angels from Genesis 6. You are now, this is what Peter's saying to his readers, you are now people who have been immersed and transformed by this covenant, and you've been given a supernatural message and a supernatural purpose. And what is that transformation he talks about? What is that transformation? He describes it. You have been transformed to a clear conscience, meaning this. Does it mean, remember what we said earlier on, that every thought was evil? This is the reverse of that. Our conscience is clean. And what does that look like? It means royal priests, believers who have a singular focus on what we talked about last week, goodness and peace and readiness to proclaim the story of this incredible cosmic victory of Jesus over evil. People so immersed and transformed, so baptismed by this victory of God's covenant, we're not easily distracted by all the crap that's around us. Sadly, many American Christians don't show much evidence that they've been baptismed by the covenant. They don't show much evidence of transformation. Instead of evidence of transformation through the covenant of baptisma, 
we show we are obsessed with the wrong type of bios kind of passions. Oh, we have the right rhetoric on Sundays, but our passions aren't those that should result from being people who have been engulfed, baptismed by the covenant. It seems like we have passions for righteous things, but most of them are just bios-type battles for temporary outcomes, not eternal ones. We become heralds, for sure, for culture war, political obsession, the American dream even. Don't get me wrong, I love America, but it's temporary. All those things are obsession with being heralds of bios versus Zoe from two weeks ago. Many make pursuing these passions priority even over gathering together as royal priests. I don't understand it. We become heralds or proclaimers of so many things, rarely proclaiming the actual victory Jesus was bragging about. We become what James calls, ready, double-minded people, unstable in all our ways. That's the unclean conscience. Obsession with and proclamation of those temporary passions, those don't scare the forces of evil. They love it when we focus on that garbage. Oh, they're excited. They're not talking about Jesus kicking our butt. Thank goodness. They're talking about Biden or Trump. Or they're talking about masks or vaccines or culture wars. Or they're, they're not talking about the victory. Thank goodness. There's only one message and one battle and one thing that evil is afraid of, and it frightens them to their core. Check this out, Ephesians 3.10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, heralds, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who are those? Not presidents, not kings forces of darkness. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities that rule the heavens. Remember that? That's what this is in Ephesians. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers. In other words, the church starts bragging about Jesus' victory. As you read this verse, doesn't it sound a lot like Peter's description of Noah and his family as heralds for righteousness? In 2 Peter... In case you don't remember what I read in 2 Peter, I just thought it I'd put it up on the screen for you. <laughs> he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The proclamation of God's wisdom by his chosen priests, which is the same victory Jesus was bragging about, that is what evil fears. The rest of it, they scoff at. <laughs> you think that worries me? What concerns us is what Jesus did to us after the cross and what's coming. You know what they fear more than anything else? The sound of a captivated, immersed, inspired priesthood full of covenant power proclaiming the beautiful cosmic victory of Jesus over darkness. 
This beautiful picture should inspire you, church, to live in selfless, fearless ways the world just can't understand. Complete, total baptisma, immersion, engulfed into the work of the priesthood, empowered by the same Spirit of Christ that was bragging in darkness to those angels who were fallen. That's where our clean conscience comes from. A conscience, a mind, a heart that has not evil thoughts continually, but thoughts continually, consistently focused on Christ's priorities and values, singular in focus and in effort. Bear your cross as you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasure you found. That's the message. Not all this other garbage. The one Peter describes. The one that started with Noah, and as you'll learn in 2 Peter, continued with Sodom and Gomorrah and three other places, as covenant promise engulfs us with grace, carrying us through judgment to transformation to a pure conscience that can say, oh yeah, I'm part of this incredible victory you forces of darkness are frightened to death of. And nothing is going to distract me from it. Heavenly Father, first of all, we confess you there's many things that distract us. We are distracted. We are consumed by things that constantly help us or cause us to turn away from being heralds of righteousness. Things that keep us from being gentle and peaceable and ready. Things that keep us from being zealous for good, instead making us zealous for a fight. Father, we're asking you today to remind us of the victory of Christ Give us a clear conscience with thoughts that are continually focused on the message of righteousness. Help us to put down our obsession with the things that don't scare evil. Help us to pick up and constantly share in peace and love the story of forgiveness and redemption through the work of Christ and his resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week. Live like those who have been engulfed by the promise of redemption.